Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single person or topic, think about what's going on, and unpack the rest. Today, we are once again chatting with Kyle Stanford, lead venture capital research analyst at PitchBook, covering the U.S. venture capital market. Kyle, welcome back to the show. What shall we talk about today? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me back. What should we talk about today? I don't know. What does anyone want to talk about these days? Kava IPO, because that's the only thing that's happened in the exit market. I don't know, FTC and all the antitrust stuff, like that's obviously uh, having some problems with VC. We can can do... How, how doomed do you want to be versus how optimistic? Man, I mean, I, I was going to take that in an entirely different direction. I was thinking like uh, the U.S. women's national team starts yeah. the World Cup on Friday. We got the Hungarian Grand Prix this weekend. It's going to be a kick-ass weekend for sports. But I, I think probably, given that it's us and this show, we should talk about, you know, venture capital. Sure, sure, sure. Anyways, jokes aside, we have you back on because Q2 data has just dropped. We are all trying to figure out the state of play, if you will, out there both in the world and domestically here in the US when it comes to venture capital and startup investment. I have read through the PitchBook NVCA report, of course, and I just kind of wanted to sit back and hear from you what were your biggest takeaways before we drill down into a number of things because I know what I thought was important, but I want to hear what's on your mind. Yeah, I mean, I think overall it was... A pretty calm quarter. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, right? Exits were extremely low still. We're looking at 12 billion total through the first two quarters of the year. Not good. Uh, Fundraising, there was a slight uptick, but still 33 billion only. Not good. Deal activity was pretty flat. And I think that's where we've looked at it as, you know, maybe we're we're kind of hitting the bottom and and everything's just kind of where it's going to stay. But we're still over 4,000 deals per quarter, which is higher than any quarter before 2021. So, you know, still hot from a deal activity standpoint, but deal value again is really low. I think of the 85 billion, you know, that you're going to have 6.9 billion from Stripe's deal. You have the $10 billion open AI deal. So 20% of the total deal value is from two deals, which, you know, don't necessarily indicate the strength of a market, right? Yeah, it's not, they're not really venture deals. I mean, I yeah. understand they are investments into private technology companies, but at some point we got to let the startup label have an end point. And I don't think that Stripe raising billions of dollars to allow some of its employees to cash out because it put off its IPO too long counts as a traditional venture capital route. It feels more like a structured investment to allow for near-term liquidity to retain employees. You know what I mean? I mean, I would agree with you, right? And when everyone wants to look at it as like this huge down round, I think there's two things there. Stripe had the ability to because they didn't give up too much in the round spire. But also the investors, like the money wasn't being used for growth. So why would they invest at the same price as the last round yeah. where that money was going straight into the company, right? So yeah, not necessarily venture deals, but getting counted into the venture deal value for the you know, half year so far, which again, those two deals are not going to be indicative of a very strong venture market. No, not at all. And so I'm glad you put it that way because my view was very similar. This last quarter felt quite a lot like Q1, which was a little scary given that Q1 was not a celebratory moment for venture-backed companies in the United States. But there was a data point that did stick out to me, which was that there's now, I think, like 50,000 venture-backed companies. Mm -hmm. And I I was curious, is that a domestic number for the U.S. or is that a global number for the whole world? No, that's that's for U.S. only. Wow. And so that's when you talk about capital availability being low, not only is there less capital out there, there's 50,000 companies that need that money. Yeah. We didn't pull for this report down round data, but we did take a look at it and we're finally starting to see an uptick in down rounds too. Yeah. Which again, when you have that many companies that have been just lengthening their runway as much as possible and going through layoffs and, and trying to get on extensions. And when at some point all these companies 
that can't do that need to come back to market and raise. And we're starting to see, yeah, obviously there's been a lot of structure in the rounds, but down rounds are now finally starting to pick up. And I think we're in mid teens, which is double what we were seeing a year ago. It's I think 5% more than what we saw in, in Q1. And it's not something that we expect to start dropping down again either. Okay, so if we are seeing a mid-teens percentage of current venture capital rounds in the U.S. be down rounds, and it's up 5%, let's say it was 15 now, it was 10 before, it's a 50% increase mm-hmm. in a single quarter. Does that number keep keep going up, do you think, the rest of the year, or maybe we're at the new plateau? No, I don't think there's any reason to believe that that is going to plateau or, or start going down, right? The exit market is, Kava's IPO is great, again, but there's there's no tech companies that are filing. There's M&A is still really low. Like we have very low, and there's no large deals being completed, right? And that's where all the the needs to be happened, right? So if we're just collecting a bunch of these deals that are, there's no deal value associated with them because they're really small and just kind of aqua hires, like, you know, that's not going to return or get these companies through the venture lifecycle. And if they have to come back to market in this quarter or next quarter or Q1, I expect the downrows to keep ticking up. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, that, that matches my viewpoint. But on the no deals are happening front, it's kind of funny that you put it like that because one, I agree, like the overall exit volume, and we'll talk about this more later, it is very, very minimal for a number of reasons, and it's a problem. But also, go back to when Facebook then bought Instagram. It was a billion-dollar deal, and the internet collectively lost its mind because we had never seen you know a transaction of that size before, and oh, my gosh, it's a billion dollars, this little company, how many employees does it have? And everyone was doing like, you know, oh, my gosh, that's like, you know, 48,000 heads of cattle. That's like, you know, 6,400. <laughs> F-150s or whatever. We're trying to put that number into context because it was so abnormal. Now, Databricks bought Mosaic ML for like 1.4 and we're all like, eh, okay. Yeah. Because the, the numbers are so much bigger now than they used to be that like to have an exit change the game for venture capital as a whole, a billion dollars doesn't actually move the needle when it comes to overall liquidity. So it's, it's interesting how much the game has gotten bigger, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the numbers also have to get larger in turn. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, go back to that 50,000 companies figure, right? In 2012, when Facebook was exiting, we were, we were less than half because that 50,000 has doubled since 2016. Oh, yeah. So if you go back to 2012, you're looking at under 20,000 companies, right? Yeah. And then when you look back to at 2020, 2021, there was 370 billion invested. Last year, there was still 200 and something billion invested. 85 billion that we're seeing so far this year is still high relative to like 2018, 2019. But it's like, that's a lot of money that's been put into the market the past few years. And now we have 24 billion in exit value. Like that's not going to return anything. And so when you look at LPs being slow or investors being slow, like exits is where, you know, the problems are really starting from. We're going to get to exits, I promise. If you want to hear about why why venture capitalists are struggling to raise, hang tight. But I want to talk about the investor-friendliness metric you guys have. Because mm-hmm. you mentioned how many down rounds we're seeing, and you mentioned structure. But you guys over at the PitchBook team have a an investor-friendliness um, metric, if you will, that I, was, that I was parsing out. And I was just curious, what goes into that? And what should founders and tech workers out there understand about how venture capital rounds are looking today versus how they looked you know, 18, 24 months ago? Yeah, our VC deal-making indicator is a really interesting way that we've taken our data to look at the market, right? 2021, as far as the startup friendliness, is as startup-friendly as you can get, right? And you can think about why. Term sheets are coming in clean, valuations are sky-high, deals are happening really fast as well. 
Now we can look at it exactly the opposite, right? I think it's the, the highest the metric has been to an investor-friendly standpoint in the last decade. Yeah. yeah, what goes into that? Valuation growth goes into that. Valuation kind of like the step-ups go into that. And those deal terms that we've kind of mentioned, right? Whether it be kind of some liquidation multiples or participating preferred shares, any of those structure parts of the deal that are now increasing to investor-friendliness go into that. And when we talk about a, a term sheet being clean, we mean devoid of structure. And when we talk about participating preference or liquidation preference, whatever, those are mechanisms by which investors are protected and founders are, you could say, left with more risk in the potential event of an exit that is less than exciting for everybody. Yeah, definitely, right? If you add structure to these deals and you aren't able to exit at an up valuation, those founders are going to really take the hit and existing investors that might have been you know, severely diluted or not be part of these structured terms. They're going to lose out on a lot of capital at that exit. Right. And so that's when we talk about investor friendliness. It's not friendly to all investors in a round or in a company. Right. It's going to be friendly to the ones that are making the deal now and are able to really push those investor protections for themselves and make the deal palatable to them. Right. Especially if these founders want to keep their valuation as high or, or even look up for all intents and purposes, that could be a down round. Yeah. I just realized something, though, because if you go back in time to 2021, a lot of solo GPs, angels and early seed investors were telling me that they were being essentially told by founders to give up their pro rata rights. So that way, later stage investors could essentially you know, take on bigger investments. They could take on more money. And they felt very squeezed, these early investors. Now, the same cohort of people are stuck with companies that they've invested in raising rounds that are more structured than before, which also puts them at a disadvantage. So it really does seem like even at great times or bad times, it's tough to be a super early stage VC because you're always being squeezed somehow, mm -hmm. no matter what's going on. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at it from a very basic standpoint, if you're investing in a seed or even a series A and that company goes on to raise six or seven more rounds, you're going to get really diluted down, <laughs> right? I mean, it, it might not make as much a difference because if a company's raising that much and they, if they're a Coinbase and exit at $85 billion valuation, yeah. you know, your half a percent is still going to be worth quite a bit, right? More than your fund probably. But in times like this, when the down rounds are coming in and you're not only getting diluted, but the company is not nearly what you were hoping it was going to be, that can be a real problem for the returns for those smaller VCs, especially if, if they've kind of put all their chips in, a, in one or two baskets. Yeah. And this is, if you're thinking, listening to this, man, those, those poor little, you know, investors compared to the bigger investors, they, you know, they should have some protections. Well, welcome to business and uh, capital carries its own gravity. And if you don't have as much of it, you're not as important. Yeah. So it feels like you and I are on the same page. We're kind of in this Q2, feels like Q1. Maybe this is starting to feel like the new venture normal-ish, but I want to go kind of stage by stage and riff on this because seed was very interesting. Here in the US, in Q2, we're going to see annualized seed deal volume that surpasses 2020, according to PitchBook data, but we're seeing a pretty steady decline, I think, in the actual value of those deals. So I'm hearing like, you know, seed valuations are high, we're seeing lots of deals, but the overall dollars going in is going down. What's the state of seed? Right, so, I mean... You think about where seed has been over the past few years, right? There's a huge number of micro funds in the U.S. right now. So there's a huge number of investors there. So that's going to keep the deals kind of going. But also early stage has dropped down. So if there's no one to invest at early stage or if the market for your seed investments is really crowded, it's going to be really difficult to get those companies moving on. If those companies are not moving on, you can't go back to LPs to show them the companies that 
are not growing or not having valuations, it's going to be much tougher for these seed investors to raise. And so that is also causing those seed investors to slow their capital deployment now, make sure that they are investing as you know a much higher bar than they were in 2021. So we're starting yeah. to see that you know, decline coming down. And obviously deal value at any stage is going to be really boosted by a few outliers, right? But those outliers are not coming, they're not coming for venture growth. They're also not coming for C anymore, right? So we've seen deal value drop as well. Okay. So overall, it sounds like even though there are some positive signals in some parts of the U.S. seed market, it's not burgeoning. It's not super healthy. It's probably suffering from some of the same stuff we're seeing elsewhere in the domestic venture capital scene. Yeah. I mean, and we can break down that that company inventory much further and just go look at seed. And there's you know more than 20,000 or so seed companies now. That's that's a huge, mm-hmm. huge number. I think the entire market finally, is, it says that seed now too, it just had to slow down, right? And that investment pace from 2021, where GPs were coming back to LPs faster and companies were coming back to raise capital just over a year after their previous round. That's much, that's way too fast, right? And so now everyone's just kind of slowing down and that's hitting C early stage, you know, kind of every stage. I wonder if we're in like the relaxation phase. I almost want to call it like in the Spanish sense, like the siesta moment of venture capital. Like we had this burst of activity and now we're all kind of leaning back and then maybe things will accelerate again later on. But it doesn't feel like when I look at this data that we're on the cusp of a rebound. Like it feels much more like we're seeing interesting changes inside of a relatively static overall amount of money that's being Mm -hmm. deployed for the last, I mean, frankly, three or four quarters. I've been saying that, you know, kind of the situation or or what the data looks like is pretty precarious, right? Oh, interesting. We're not hearing as much about a recession, but there's still the possibility the recession hits in. And so we're seeing deal activity kind of plateau. But if we were to hit a kind of worse economic moment or hit a recession or if inflation jumps back up, I feel like the deal activity is is pretty precarious and that'll drop off further, right? Yeah. And so that level that we've hit now is contingent on inflation continuing to come down, which looks great. Interest rates reaching their peaks sooner rather than later, and then hopefully coming down soon. But still, I think a lot of the market is going to get very congested until these companies can exit. Yeah. We've got a huge number of companies that need to IPO or get acquired or move through the venture life cycle. And that will that will pull that money through through every stage. But for now, it's not going to turn around this year. It doesn't seem like Hopefully we get some S1s coming through and, and maybe hope for, our, you know, maybe a late Q4 or Q1 resurgence of some deals. But um, it looks pretty precarious to me. It's so fascinating because I actually, when I was putting my notes together for this, I was thinking about actually making the opposite argument that there are enough potentially positive signs out there that we could actually make the case that maybe in that time frame you just mentioned, kind of late 23, early 24, that maybe things will get better. And it's funny how many of my things you hit on. So I was thinking about, you know, we are seeing a few more mega rounds around the world in Q2 versus Q1. We are seeing, I would say, an easing in in macro pressure. That's the recession Mm -hmm. point that you brought up, the fact that it hasn't happened yet. And I, I would say that the slowing inflation rate in several key markets leading to potentially less aggressive rate hikes than we anticipated, you know, three, six months ago, could be laying the groundwork for perhaps expanding revenue multiples for tech companies, both public and private, and maybe scaring, um, letting some companies go public and recycling some of the money back in, VCs feeling better. But it sounds like, you know, if you're on a knife's edge, you could go either way. So precarious probably is the right way to phrase it. It just, it feels more negative, Kyle, than I was, (laughs) than I was thinking, but I also, I really see what you're trying to say. Yeah, I I try not to be a super negative person, right? And so, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right. Try try is the operative word there. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we fail. But like, I want it to be a boost. But the public market, you know, kind of year to date stuff, that's all been mega cap tech stocks, right? And none of these 
companies are getting valued against Microsoft or NVIDIA or, you know, Google, right? And so those could be great, but what's happening, what they're going to get valued against is kind of the, you know, those mid-caps public comparables that they have. And those haven't done as great, right? And we've seen a little expansion in the multiples, but when these companies... A lot of these companies raising in 2021 were raising on 50x multiples. Yeah. You know, it's like something that seems crazy now that that's what the public market was supporting. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's not. And so even if there's some tech, again, Kava's IPO is like kind of the only thing anyone can point to right now. It's like, it's been great. It's like a nice exit for VC, you know, but it's not tech stock. It's not going to, I don't believe, push many more to go. And until those multiples come back, all the companies that do try to, exit through an IPO, we're going to have a very difficult time, right? And if they have taken on any structured rounds in the past year and a half without that huge multiple in the IPO market, they're going to get diluted, right? They're going to give up more shares to all their investors or they're going to give up, you know, more of, of that dilution that they, they don't want. So I still think it's a ways away. Of course, we are going to talk about the one IPO that we've cared about this year. But first, we have to take a very short break and more about Kava when we get back. Let's talk about the Kava IPO because I feel like you and I, being people who mutter S1 out loud in our sleep, were paying attention to this IPO because it did have some venture capital money in there. It also had some other private market capital. It mm-hmm. certainly wasn't a traditionally venture-backed tech company. If you don't know, Kava is a fast, casual Mediterranean food chain. And uh, it's kind of like Chipotle, but instead of Mexican, you get hummus, essentially. And it's supposed to be great. People rave. We've talked about it on the show. But the hope was that when Kava did go public and did price above its range and did see its stock double, essentially in the first week of trading, that it would engender more IPOs. It would give confidence to the market. So Kyle, the question is, did it not do that because it is such an outlier as to not be material to other companies that may want to go public? Or was it just not tech enough to actually have any influence on the space that we watch? I think it's not tech enough, but I also think if you are a company that's getting compared to Chipotle, you're in a good spot, right? They've got some good margins. They've had growing company stores. It is very good. We don't have one in Seattle, but I have had it before and it's it's quite delicious. And so they fit what the public investor model is right now. And many tech companies don't, right? Yeah. I know we, it's like kind of ad nauseum and talking about the, you know, this growth at all costs over the past decade. All these companies have maybe strong revenue growth, but they are losing millions and millions and millions of dollars to restructure that in a way that public investors will look at the company and look at it and be like, all right, this is a growing business and their margins are growing and they're profitable in two years. That takes some time and money and effort, right? And so I think regardless of, you know, the the multiples in the public market, you look at these companies and they're restructuring themselves to fit the public investor profile. And that takes time. And so that's another aspect of their businesses that they need to you know, redo the entire market with just kind of binging on venture capital for the past few years. And that has led to, yeah, the high growth, but not the fundamentals to come behind it that public market investors decided now that they want. What's interesting to me and potentially ironic about what you just outlined is that it does take time for these companies to tune themselves to what public markets want today. But after working on this for six quarters now, and with interest rates possibly no longer going up at an aggressive pace, if at all, as inflation comes down in the US, I wonder if by the time these startups and tech companies have become sufficiently profit-focused as to meet the current standard, if that window will already have passed and will be in a more growth-oriented market at that point. And then they'll have to re- re-pivot their operations to then match what becomes the new, new normal. And it just, it takes so long, they might actually miss the current preference wave. You know? <laughs> that would be ironic. But yeah, it's like, it's really difficult when investors are can change 
very quickly. And the companies are kind of set up in a way that like, if you've been growing at growth at all costs and just kind of just doing everything for that revenue growth and that market share growth for eight years, it's, yeah, yeah. there's a, then there's a two year window and you have to restructure it and then it's gone again. And you could have just found a way to make it through. Like, I'm sure that all that will happen. You know, I think that would be, that'd be benefit for VC. And you would have a lot of companies that were better structured too, right? That growth at all costs is great for growth. But when you get to an actual business, like now when people have started to want to invest in real businesses and, and look for a profit, it hasn't been what VC has been set up to do or, or to create. Getting closer to creating those profitable companies would probably be a, a benefit overall. Yeah, there's a conversation going on this week that Shamath kind of kicked off on a podcast in the last couple of days about why aren't software companies more profitable in general. And I've been talking about this with some people, but there is an interesting fact to irony, again, frankly, in the fact that we see these companies that have high amounts of recurring revenue and very high gross margin revenue, which is another way of saying high quality top line, who are also incredibly unprofitable. You would think that if you had that much gross margin to play with, you could make money because we expect grocery stores to make money and they have gross margins that are as thin as a piece of paper. And so I Puzzling that out is not our job today, but I, I do think that people are talking about that now because of what you're describing, this growth at all cost mentality, the decade of spend, and essentially companies forgetting that business fundamentals apply to startups eventually too. There's no escape from gravity forever. And that's why Microsoft spends so much money buying back its stock. You know, you end up becoming the company you tried to kill, hopefully, if you succeed. Yeah, I mean, as a founder, it's tough to remember that when the investors are telling you to use every bit of revenue that you are getting to put back into the company to continue to grow. And then someone is coming and offering you $100 million on a $50 billion valuation. Like, yeah, okay, I'll take that. That sounds great. Like, this is what I've been trying to do. Profit will come. And for me, these companies, it just yeah. wasn't coming or hasn't come. And so... They missed the boat. They missed the boat. Now, I want to go back before we run low on time and talk about venture capital and exits, because I've been tracking the decline in startup liquidity. I mean, this is IPOs, M&A, aqua hires, whatever. And to me, it's been terrifying for a very long time because we've had so many unicorns out in the market. And I've been writing about this since 2016, and no one else seemed to be worried. But then recently, with the decline in exits since the 2021 boom, and the fact that so much venture capital went in, there does seem to be rising concern about how that money will recycle. We've talked about this a little bit today. My question is, has the pressure of built-up invested capital and no exits grown to the point when VCs are struggling to raise more money for themselves because their backers don't want to put more money in until they get some money out. So, so a lot to unpack in this liquidity conversation, right? Okay. We're actually doing some stuff right now looking at, you know, the overcapitalization of VC over the past two years, right? And it basically started during the pandemic. Yeah. Because if you remember, we worked, filed this S1 in my, was it September of that year before the pandemic? And everyone then was, they want profitability. Six months later, a pandemic happened and then everything kind of changed. What changed the most was these crossover investors and other large institution coming into VC and pumping huge amounts of money through mega deals, through, you know, late stage and venture growth stage deals because they were getting money very quickly. In 2021, Companies were exiting about a year, a little over a year after their last round. The valuation was averaging double through an IPO. And so it was a really easy move for these institutional investors to just throw money into these deals and get it back pretty quickly. Well, now it's created, again, 50,000 companies in the U.S. There's, I think, close to 800 unicorns in the U.S. Huh? Because these companies were just able to raise money without needing to go to an exit. And the markets were great. Everything was ripping higher. So 
The market was super overcapitalized. We've actually just this last quarter kind of run through that overcapitalization through our model, just looking at like where we should have been. We've, we're now out. So down rounds are coming through. So yeah, 50,000 companies, many fewer exits. The IPO market or the IPO, especially again, was almost a trillion dollars has been invested in VC in 2021, 2022. 86% of the 700 or three quarters of a trillion dollar exit value in 2021 was through IPOs. Without IPO market accepting these VC-backed companies, there's going to be a lot less capital that is coming out than went in in the past few years. So that will be a problem. So if you're a VC and you raised, you know, one or two funds pre-pandemic, you raised 19 funds during the pandemic period because you could, you put all that money to work and now you're staring down, you know, the need to kind of re-up for your next fund. How much harder do you think it's going to be for these investors who are sitting on a lot of paper gains, but not a lot of actual cash when they go back to their LPs and say, hey, you know, we would like to keep our jobs. So please give us another check. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to increase in difficulty. We've had 3,700 funds closed since the beginning of 2020. So there's probably too many VC funds in the market right now. There will be funds that have been around for 20 years or or has a, a name like Andreessen that will be able to raise whenever they want. But for many of these GPs, they will struggle to raise that next fund and we'll probably see some sort of culling of the group of, of VCs, which again, will probably be healthy and get back to a, a more sustainable pace of growth for VC. But LPs, I mean, we've talked to some GPs that are moving their fundraise out to 2024 because LPs became very overbalanced to VC. Yeah. You know, so they'll take a year to kind of rebalance their portfolio, make sure they're at where they're are, but they're going to continue investing in VC, right? VC is going to continue getting dollars. It just might not be 160 billion a year from a fundraising <laughs> standpoint, right? Which so is, much money is going to be okay. Yeah. But then, you know, there will always be another exuberant market. What's been interesting about this last year is you've seen BlackRock, you've seen Blackstone, you've seen, you know, JP Morgan really increase their exposure to the venture market. And so the next growth will be alongside these huge financial institutions that have now seen the potential of VC, right? And so I think that's been an interesting movement over the past year, um, whether it be through credit or, you know, JP Morgan being kind of a big winner of Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with this was, I mean, you're, you're listing off banks that kind of got a bit of a boost when mm-hmm. one of their, I'm not going to say peer entity, but industry friends died. And then they were followed by, you know, a couple of other deaths. So like, sure, it's like if my brother dies and I get his shit, you know, victory, <laughs> but then I'm also, my, my brother's dead. RIP SVB is what I'm saying. Right. For sure, right. But yeah, I mean, JP Morgan had been kind of moving into VC over the past few years. They've what, hired a bunch of bankers. Like they got a lot of deposits from Silicon Valley Bank. Like they really kind of cemented themselves as a big bank. You know, are they going to be as, you know, trusted as Silicon Valley Bank? Maybe not. But at some point, everyone needs to use a bank. And if JP Morgan is there and all the other regional banks are, are struggling or there's a lot of narrative of struggle around them, JP Morgan is going to look at like a very sturdy bank for these startups. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think everyone's going to bigger banks and more banks because suddenly this idea of having one cool kid bank where everyone kept their money was a mistake. And like, look, I'm not going to say that decentralization is the only way forward. I'm not a a Bitcoin maxi. (laughs) But I mean, I have my money in more than one bank and I'm a person. I was kind of blown away when Roku had like a half, you know, kajillion dollars in SVB. I was like, really, guys? A checking account? Really? That's what you got? Interesting times. Before I let you go, though, I'm curious about essentially the moment when the oxygen runs out of the room. 
50,000 venture-backed companies in the U.S. alone. Capital's down. There's no way in hell there's going to be enough money in rounds for all these companies. We're not seeing M&A. So the only thing that I can see happening, to moneyball this out a little bit, is a lot of just startups dying. And I'm curious if that's too pessimistic a perspective to take because I don't want to be known as a perma-bear when in reality I'm actually, and don't tell anybody, a mild optimist. I won't tell anyone, I promise. Thank you. But, right, when you talk about extinction events or anything like that, right, that's what people would call this. So there will be increased M&A, right? Some of these companies are just going to disappear, right? If you're a seed or series A company, it might be easier to just, you know, disband, right? But mm-hmm. M&A, whether it's a, a successful M&A or not, it's going to be there for corporates. There's going to be probably some consolidation in markets. I think a lot of markets have been very crowded with the number of companies that have sprung up there. So some consolidation is good. You know, it's not going to be necessarily the capital return that many of these founders hope for, but there's be super optimistic and be like, oh, they get experience and whatnot. But like their money is moving through the venture life cycle as it should, right? And it's like these events happen. There's always crises, you know, every 10 years or so. Yep, more or less. More or less, yeah. So we'll see, we always will see companies go out of business, right? Again, when you get 50,000 companies that are privately VC backed, unfortunately, the public markets just can't handle the number of companies that need to IPO. There aren't enough large tech giants to acquire all the unicorns. And so- It'll happen. That's the thing that blows my mind. Like, how many public companies are there in the U.S. right now? It's like single-digit thousands, right? I'm going to break protocol and Google this while we're recording. Sorry, everybody. Welcome to my keyboard sounds. Number of public. (laughs) Okay, so it's as of March 23, it's 2,400 on the New York Stock Exchange and 3,600 on the NASDAQ. So call it 6K total. So single-digit thousands. 50,000 venture-backed companies implies that we're going to see the biggest wave of M&A of all time or they're going to die because they're not all going to go public. There's no, there's just mathematically, no, it will not happen. Yeah. So I I just, I wonder what's the carrying capacity of the American economy for venture-backed companies? Because it's not 50K. I wonder if it's like (laughs) 15. I would guess it's more than 15. Okay. I don't know if there's a a specific number, but I think if you include SPACs (laughs) and, and kind of those... The public listings, like the most VC-backed companies that listed in a month was like 30. I'll have to check so that. So 360 a year. Which is a lot. And in 2021, there was 300, including all the SPAC mergers. So call it 200 normal in an outlier year. Let's yeah. presume that's 2x the max norm, 100 a year, 50. I mean, it just... Again, that's including all the SPAC transactions and the DSPACs, right? And so I think from just an IPO perspective, 200 would be a lot. Oh, yeah. And there's 800 unicorns <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah. Plus other, you know, global unicorns that will likely list in the U.S. Yep. So let's just say tomorrow the IPO window opens and everyone starts filing. It's going to be very crowded for the first year, two years, really. Or it won't be because everyone just <laughs> go out of business. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the IPO window does open and we do get a wave of IPOs, I'm very curious to see how much combating for attention hurts companies versus Kava, which managed to go public essentially by itself. And had the fact that you and I know about the fast casual Mediterranean restaurant by name and can recall elements of its like history, finances, and so forth, just indicates how little we've had to chew on. Now imagine the opposite of that. If the buffet is stacked, it's hard to stand out if you just want more tomato, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure, right? And all these companies will find a way and the banks will find a way to push their clients to the top as much as they can. But as far as Kava goes, if I was a good investor, I would have bought Chipotle stock a long time ago because in high school, I ate it like every day. It's like 
I knew how good it was. Yeah. So I went to Chipotle literally before <laughs> before we recorded this. <laughs> I had to stop. I have half of a double chicken Chipotle bowl literally within arm's reach that I had to stop eating to record with you. So as soon as we're done, I get to go finish lunch. That's willpower. It's actually a respect thing because I didn't want to eat on the pod. That felt <laughs> aggressive. Okay, we're going to have you back on later this year when we kind of figure out which way things go. But I, I'm very glad that we talked this through because my views aren't crazy and I may actually be more optimistic than I thought compared to where you are. And that actually, <laughs> I kind of like to sit there. But we can't let you go without a little bit of harassment. Mm. So we're going to go through our favorite uh, kind of like lightning round questions here. And it's, uh, oh, it's just one this time. This is easy. What is your favorite all-time Taylor Swift record? Oh. And there's there's wrong answers here. So, so, you know, get it right. I enjoy Midnight's. Right? Is that her latest one? I think she's got some good stuff on there. Yes. So I'm going to go with that one. But, oh, come on. Like, I don't know. I think it's, it's good. I, that, that's like saying I, Metallica put out 72 seasons. She's got some good stuff on there. I'll go with that. Like, come on now. The correct answer is Evermore, by the way, in case you were curious. Has she had a bad album? Um, No, but Lover was pretty weak. Mm. Right. It just, it kind of fell into this, this hole in her discography. It's just not very good. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, on that very disappointing note of an incorrect answer from Kyle Stanford, um, thank you, as always, for coming on the show. And uh, if people want to go read a bunch of PitchBook data, where should they go? They should go to PitchBook News and Analysis. We have all of our reports on there. We've got a lot of really good content analyst notes that dives into specific areas of the venture market. If you're into private equity, we've got a bunch there. So that's where all of our reports are stored and they are all public. Yep. And if you want to read along like TechCrunch, just download them, read them, and then write about them and send your post in and we will talk about it on the show. All right. That is all the time we have, everybody. Listen, Equity is back on Friday with our news roundup. You can keep up with us on Twitter and threads where we tweet and thread under the handle Equity Pod. We are on Blue Sky under the handle Equity. And we are also the sister podcast of both Found and Chain Reaction. Excellent shows elsewhere in the TechCrunch Podcast Network. Kyle, thank you. Thank you all for being here. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 